Kevin Chu, host of the Interconnected Newsletter. Welcome to your second appearance on Chinatown. Thank you so much for having me back, Jordan. Am I one of the few or uh, repeat guests on your show? It's rarefied company. Unfortunately, that does not include Elon Musk, though we're about to talk about him for the next 15 minutes. Kevin, where should we start in, in understanding Elon's very special position in the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, so there is a lot, I think, that people don't cover about Elon's relationship in China. Uh, a lot of people do cover when it comes to Tesla's place, Tesla's market share, Tesla's uh, gigafactory in Shanghai, which is obviously humming along and, in my opinion, probably saved Tesla's entire business during COVID while all, all of their other manufacturing capabilities, mostly in the U.S. at this point, have been uh, shut down or mandated to shut down one way or another. One thing I've written quite a lot about on Interconnected, my newsletter, about Elon is how much he cares about building a local Chinese engineering team. Actually, back in 2020, during the height of the pandemic, Shanghai still hosted its annual AI conference. Even though it was a virtual conference, there were in-person attendees in Shanghai, and Elon zoomed in to do a Q&A. And there was a bunch of coverage out of that particular session about Elon's proclamation to reach level five, which is the highest level of autonomous driving, and his optimistic timetable as usual. But really, the entire 15-minute Q&A was a very candid, an enthusiastic recruiting pitch to recruit Chinese engineers, specifically autonomous driving and AI engineers, to do quote-unquote original engineering. And I think that's something that even today, as I was reading some coverage about Tesla and China's relationship, does not really dive into is how important it is to have local engineers, as in local working in Beijing, Guangdong, etc., to help the whatever the autonomous driving algorithm map to the local condition at hand in order to make self-driving actually work. And that's something that Elon has emphasized a lot to get to the kind of self-driving that we can perhaps all enjoy one day, is that there is actually less transferability between the kind of mapping you can do in all your road testing in California or Ohio, for example, and transfer that to streets of Berlin or streets of uh, Beijing or even rural Wuhan for that matter. And that's something that I think really is the underpinning between Elon's relationship and China is that one, it is creating uh, original engineer and therefore original IP in China in one of the most cutting edge area of technology that we are working on as a species. And number two, it is also trying to become the most important advanced manufacturing company in China with its Shanghai Gigafactory, which is, again, something that Elon emphasizes almost every time if you listen to a Tesla earning call, is that it's not about uh, the self-driving per se that's going to make Tesla important. It's not going to be the EV side that's going to make Tesla successful. It's actually the throughput of advanced manufacturing, in his opinion, that will make Tesla a successful car company vis-a-vis other competitors that he has to do uh, to deal with out there. Elon Musk playing with fire a American listed high technology firm pushing original research in China and the most cutting edge manufacturing in China is not something that makes Washington particularly happy. And even Beijing wants uh, indigenization, wants 
at, at a certain level, Chinese firms to be the ones where the best Chinese engineers are working, as opposed to producing producing IP for a for a California, I guess maybe Texas now based <laughs> firm. What is the how is how is Elon trying to navigate these waters? Yeah, and I think uh, you're right that those are the bigger things that Chinese government wants to indigenize or localize a lot of this stuff. But I think that's where this relationship currently works between Elon and its very uh, unique status as an entrepreneur who has a foreign company that does not have any local joint venture relationship. He was not forced to be quote-unquote partners with any local Chinese companies to build whatever Tesla is in China today. And the reason is he can single-handedly, in my opinion, mobilize not just the trading trend lines of Dogecoin, but also the best engineer and the best talent that exists in China to work on some of these problems in ways that other Chinese companies currently cannot. It doesn't have the brand value. It doesn't have this this mystique to make all this very hard problem worth working on. And we will probably talk about that a little bit in terms of how to make all this shit cool. So more and more people in America are willing to work on this stuff also. But right now, whatever China may want to localize in the future, it needs a lot of this energy to mobilize engineering, talent to work on this stuff as opposed to say the next tiktok or the next group buying platform or something so the government and the country wants that talent to go in that direction and the other thing that i think tesla has mobilized as a company as well is also just pure consumer demand for buying electric vehicles in ways that government, the government's own subsidies, multi-billion subsidies since 2008 or 2009, hasn't been able to generate as much as just one Elon coming in for an auto show and be like, let's all buy this stuff. And people are just lining out the door to put their advanced orders in. And those are the kind of things that yeah. really change not just the industry itself, but also the environment and all the climate change issues so China obviously has to recognize that it has to deal with, and EV is a big part of that. Yeah, no, it's. I think the sort of like impact of Elon as an icon in China on Chinese sort of industrial policy and technological development is really an underappreciated one. I, I think it was you, Kevin, who highlighted the impact that Elon had on uh, Lei Jun's decision, Lei, Lei of Xiaomi's decision to go into the EV space saying, look, I got this all from Elon. I saw how he was doing it. He convinced me that this was the future. That's right. I just read a long report by IDA, whose authors will be interviewed on this podcast in the next week or so, talking about how Elon Musk and SpaceX basically inspired an entire generation of aerospace engineers who were probably content to live out their lives at at Kasich, the equivalent of NASA in China, instead deciding to go out on their own and see if they can make it in the commercial space world. The sort of stature, is there anyone comparable in terms of, there's sort of Warren Buffett in China, which I guess is at this level, but he's inspiring people to like make smarter like equity purchasing decisions, not change their lives and, and, and start companies, which I think is something that, that, and hardware companies in particular, which is something that's really, really different about Musk's impact. I think Elon Musk's uh, brand value, and he recognizes this very clearly in his own head too. Like he may not be the best dancer on stage, but he understands how much of a personal mystique he brings to really energize and galvanize 
the best and the brightest around the world, whether it's in the U.S. or China or Iran or Germany, to help build his rockets and to help build his EVs. And are, there aren't that many entrepreneurs in our generation who can really pull that off single-handedly. There are other American success stories that folks in China obviously admire. Jeff Bezos comes to mind. Certainly Warren Buffett has come to mind. But Warren Buffett's job, really, his industry, is never has never been about creating the future. It's more about understanding the past and understanding the present, right? Which is what value investing and like public equity investing and personal finance is all about. It isn't about throwing some crazy goal out there, let's colonize Mars in a few years, and then build towards whatever is required to do that, working backwards from that kind of vision. I just want to, I don't want to come off as too much of an Elon fanboy, (laughs) per se, because I do think most of the coverage does seem to be very critical of him in one way or another that I just find relatively minor if you actually look into the source of this coverage, whether it's the AI conference I talked about last year, whether it's the more recent economic summit dialogue, I think that he did just like a couple months ago. And I wrote a post about this too, where he had a dialogue with a couple very high level uh, university officials and policymakers in China, where he defended the kind of the scandal where Tesla was accused of storing Chinese user data, which could become a national security concern if Chinese government workers were using Tesla as their car. So it was like temporarily banned, I think, to go into certain parts of the government's facility and so on and so forth. Those are stuff that does get covered, which is fine with me. But I do think there are other elements of his entire complex relationship with China and also what he's trying to maneuver to achieve his ultimate goal, which really has nothing to do with China or the US or this big country politics that we like to talk about as quote unquote mere human or mere non-robots. He just wants to go to space. Yeah. No, it's interesting, Kevin, because I, I, I agree with you on Elon seeing himself as a you know, global citizen and not like super concerned with the sort of US China dynamics insofar as it as long as it doesn't impinge on his dreams for his companies, he'll be fine with it. But I definitely see a way this plays out in which things go really poorly for Tesla in China because of the sensitivities around the rest of his business. Tesla, of course, being based in the US, SpaceX being very wedded to the US government, relying at least for the next the for the foreseeable probably five to ten years on revenue mostly from the U.S. government, from NASA and potentially military applications as well. We saw a hint of this recently with some woman showing up at a at a car show and saying that Tesla killed my Tesla killed my Tesla's autonomous driving killed my family member and was something that blew up pretty dramatically in the Chinese press. I'm curious, Kevin, how if it ends up blowing up for Tesla, what do you think are the most likely ways in which in which this all goes down? I feel like there are a lot of forces at play within China from domestic competitors to other sort of ministries who aren't probably super happy that Tesla is the one that currently has 30 plus percent of Mm -hmm. EV market share in China to who are chomping at the bit to cut Tesla and Elon Musk down to size on the mainland. Yeah, I think if we adhere to the pattern of a lot of these industry development in China in different areas in the last few decades or so, at some point, it does look like China will anoint its own national champion out of any emerging industry. Right now, between the Neos and the Xiaopengs and the Li Xiangs and BYDs and everybody else that be chomping at the bit, Xiaomi's EV 
or Huawei's own EV, Baidu's own EV. There is just isn't a clear winner, and it won't sort itself out for quite some time. And all of their yeah. benchmarks are aiming at Tesla, right? So Tesla is still the horse to to race against in this entire race. So I think until somebody from the domestic pack really becomes the clear runner-up, let's just say, between Tesla and whatever that company ends up being, I don't see the Chinese government ever putting their thumb on the scale on this industry because there are larger goals, I think, that the country really wants to achieve with the kind of EV revolution that Tesla is bringing to China. So upsetting that for the purpose of just, I don't know, anointing a national champion for the sake of doing it because it's like a U.S.-China thing is frankly a little misguided. And I think the Chinese government really understands, at least in that industry, the current dynamic is to be very laissez-faire about it. It's like we're going to give all of you subsidies and tax credits and land and whatnot and support you however we can and just go at it and we will see what happens. Yeah. It's an interesting comparison to the the semiconductor path where you've seen a much more aggressive embracing of a handful of firms, some of whom have done okay, some of whom have been disastrous, absolutely disastrous investments for the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Before we get into but before we get into that, I want to transition to industrial hero number two of the day, Morris Chang. Who is he and why does he matter? Of course. So Morris Chang, or his Chinese name is Zhang Zhongmou is a American entrepreneur of Taiwanese descent. He is 90 years old, and he is the founder and two-time CEO of TSMC, or the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, which is by far the largest chip manufacturer in the entire world right now. That is his creation. He spent his entire life first going to Harvard as an undergrad and then transferred to MIT, then got his PhD at Stanford, and has been working in the semiconductor industry for a very long time. And the other luminaries in that industry, like Roger, uh, like Gordon Moore or Bob Noyce, these people, they are all contemporaries of Morris Chang. Now, why does it matter? Because number one, he is still very much alive and kicking at 90 years old. And very recently, just a few weeks ago, he gave this very long and I think very insightful, detailed wait, speech. Wait, wait. Before we before we do that, can we just can we do a little more on his story? A few sort of points on the Morris Chang arc. First off, when he was an undergrad, he really wanted to be a like a history poli sci major, but he was worried. Correctly, it turned out that if you're an undergrad in the 1950s, looking at the sort of Chinese American role models in American political life, there were none um, who were white shoe lawyers or or, or what have you. So he ended up studying science and then ran into a glass ceiling of sorts where he was passed over for the number one position at Texas Instruments, which way back in the day was one of the leading semiconductor firms in the world, and then decided to take, to listen to the Taiwanese government's entrees to start his own firm on the island and proceeded to to create to, to build TSMC what it, to what it is today. If it were not for anti-Asian discrimination in the workplace, we A, might have had Morris Chang senator, or B, might have had a TSMC built right here in the U.S. <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to in Taiwan, either of which would have been much better outcomes, I guess, from a sort of selfish nationalist perspective. Though, though regardless, hats off to, to, 
Tamora is for achieving all he did and in the meantime revolutionizing chip development and allowing you to appreciate the sort of revolution of chip manufacturing which has allowed more and more firms to be able to design and create chips and been a really central contributor to the amount of innovation that we've seen over the past 30 30 years that's correct (laughs) (laughs) okay so with that kevin how does what does morris chang think about the state of the of the global chip ecosystem and the geopolitics that are packed first of all i think it's worth mentioning that morris chang started tsmc at the age of 54 which is at a point in his career where he's already very seasoned. Like you said, he was a number two at Texas Instrument, did not get the number one job, which he wanted. He went to another company called General Instrument, was in line for the CEO job, and decided that the company was not the right choice to take over, which he was right about because that company no longer exists, to find, to start TSMC. And now at the age of 90, and he's no longer obviously working at TSMC, he is still very vocal about everything that's happening in the semiconductor industry. So this speech that I was referencing to that he gave to a room full of mostly Chinese, uh, Taiwanese government officials and business leaders, industrialists, really wanted to advocate for them to keep on supporting TSMC as this national jewel of Taiwan because there are some unique advantages, in his opinion, that led to TSMC being successful in Taiwan specifically in ways that will be, frankly, very difficult to replicate in both the United States and in China, these much larger countries. And the three advantages that he cited specifically, which are not so obvious, at least in my opinion, is first of all, of course, the technical talent that Taiwan is boasting, but not just their technical ability, but also their dedication and their willingness to work in something that is somewhat boring when it comes to industry comparison, which is chip manufacturing. And number two, the advantage that he cited is that all of the management that TSMC boasts is that they're all Taiwanese locals and they're the top managerial talent in Taiwan. But he also made a point that these kind of talent may not transfer as well abroadly when they go to, say, Arizona to build a similar plant. And last, and I think in my opinion, probably the most non-obvious of this industry is the infrastructure that was laid down in terms of high rail, uh, high speed rail, and also high speed highway between Xinzhu, Tainan, and Taichung, which are the three uh, hubs of TSMC's plants in Taiwan, allowed really easy, quick, and massive redeployment of their workforce to go to whichever plant is necessary up to a year or so in order to highly optimize their output and their human resources and even their R&D output, which is something that he threw quite a bit of shade about during his speech and say, there's no way you can replicate something like it's in Arizona or, you know, anywhere else in America for that matter, because we don't have any high speed rail. But that kind of proximity... Who knew Pete Buttigieg was the key to uh, American semiconductor competitors? Who knew? But this is something from an industry veteran who was actually built another company in his 50s. And he was very obviously hands-on about a lot of this implementation. And anyone who's run a chip foundry will tell you that the operational side and the managerial side is incredibly, incredibly important for something that is really measured along yields and optimization metrics and really maximizing output, especially during a time when we have a global chip shortage. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, Yeah, in the sense that I think when we think about 
something with a complex supply chain, like the semiconductor industry as a whole, right? From the chip that ends up in your iPhones and in your iPads, all the way uh, back to the raw material that makes the silicon. We talk a lot about the material and the logistical supply chain of these things moving to different parts of the industry, equipment, EVs, and all these sorts of things, which is obviously important. But I think one thing that Morris emphasized that I found surprising but very important is also there's a human supply chain element to this too. You have to move around talented, competent people, whether it's the technicians or the engineers or the managers who uh, have to coordinate all their work to different plants to be able to run the kind of very high output operation that TSMC has excelled and really optimized and polished in the last three or four decades that it has been around in ways that frankly will take a lot more than just money and being able to buy the equipment and the raw material and so on and so forth to be able to replicate the kind of success that TSMC has already achieved. Yeah. For instance, let's to just to make it even more tangible. So you're running a fab line and you need you basically want to get it to over 90% yield. So when you make a when you make a wafer, you want to have over 90% of the chips that are on it be like up to snuff to be able to sell onto your consumer. Lots of different variables can bring that 90% down to 88.5, down to 88 point down to 86, down to 84. And there may be one engineer who is like super good at like figuring out how to tilt all the dials when it's a humidity problem you have. There be there may be another engineer who's really good at like making the most of a water shortage. Another one who's like really good if there's like a, a really small earthquake which kind of sets everything off by half a millimeter or something and getting all that back together. And that expertise is something that you want to be able to have on hand. And those people have been spending decades of their life in in, in order to be able to put that expertise into play. Right. And that's not necessarily something that you can just copy and paste because every fab needs to be calibrated exactly to its like operating conditions, which are going to be different in every place in the world in which and you sell. Those are the kind of star players that you need to be able to redeploy when these kind of problems come up. And because of that, the only country and the only company that Morris sees as actually legit competition to TSMC is South Korea Samsung because of the three advantages that in his view are the lens that he used to judge why Taiwan was the right place for TSMC. Similarly, South Korea with Samsung being the dominant company in almost every industry in that country and also attracts a ton of local talent, the best talent, and has a relatively small economy geographically. It's not as diverse as obviously the United States or China is the most uh, competitive threat to TSMC in ways that he just doesn't see that really material materialize in both the United States and in China, doesn't matter how much money Intel has put into their own new chip foundry initiative or how much money the Chinese government has been pouring into its national champion like the SMIC, which is the Shanghai-based chip foundry. Okay, so Kevin, why does the future of American industry depend on open source technology? So open source technology is a technology development paradigm where all the code is open, all the code is public, transparent, they can be copied, replicated, reused, and also changed into other kinds of usage. 
and anybody and everybody in the world can participate in the development of this piece of software using this open source methodology. At least that's my personal layman way of understanding it. To me, and we've seen this played out in industry, open source has open source is becoming the preferred and more dominant way to build and create new technology and new software in particular around the world. And for any country, whether you're the United States, China, Germany, Japan, understanding how technology is created now and into the future is incredibly important for how you want to shape your own industrial policy and how to even motivate your own people to become part of this new economy. So, Kevin, the layman's interpretation would be that open source, the more open source a technology stack gets, the easier lagging technological firms and countries have in getting up to the cutting edge. Given that, on by most measurements, China is is behind the U.S. in terms of in terms of corporate technological prowess. If you're only looking at it at this issue from a sort of economic competitiveness angle. How does open sourcing more stuff actually rebound to help the U.S.? Yeah, I think this is where a lot of policymakers do have trouble embracing open source as a paradigm because it is a very, <laughs> in a sense, warm and fuzzy, positive some way of thinking about the world and the future. And if you interact with open source veterans, their inclination is to give away stuff, right? And to have everyone develop stuff together, doesn't matter what country or what motive that you have, really, because that is ultimately the best way to build the best software when you have more eyes and more talent on the same code base. But if you put it in a situation like the U.S. and China, which is arguably very zero sum, the way most people think about it, it becomes a hurdle because a lot of people, and perhaps right. So are thinking that the Chinese government or certain Chinese tech companies will just use open source that was created maybe or started by some American university a few years ago to catch up really quickly by simply copying and using whatever has already been built for free to build other stuff that they want to build on top of it. And that is something that I think is worth uh, being concerned about. But I think there's more to do in terms of understanding what open source mean in this larger context of big country competition when most of technology is frankly a much more positive sum game in my opinion and also another point that we made in our piece was that by open sourcing more of the technology stack you end up competing on sort of creativity and innovation capacity and economic dynamism, which is something that if any, if the U.S. has anything going for it, it is that. The other thing which I think really resonated with me in looking at this issue is that the more sort of invested you are in creating the open source technology, the more likely you are to understand how to put it to best use and, and build out the sort of one layer up companies and applications that take advantage of it that do become commercializable and reap the tax benefits of, and broader riches that come with making big cool companies. And another nuance that I don't think we emphasize as much, so maybe we'll have to write another op-ed about this, is that open source isn't just about the technology collaboration itself, like going on GitHub or GitLab to work on code together, but there is always a governance element to every single open source project that's of any significance, right? We know Linux being the open source operating system, there's a Linux foundation that governs that project. And the process in which open source governance is developed is typically 
uh, very collaborative, very consensus-driven, very democratic. There's always elections and rolling elections of different people in technical oversight committees and all these sorts of governing apparatus in ways that, to my observation, a lot of Chinese companies, and including probably the Chinese government or some think tank, have, have a lot of trouble really dealing with because it's not very top-down. It's extremely grassroots, extremely bottoms-up. Yeah. So there is also also a value system beyond technology itself that open source the this concept really conveys and that's how it's been working for such a long time that's been working very well and in one way i do think that plays into the american value systems advantage if our policymakers knows <laughs> that nuance and knows how to take advantage of that to really foster open source in a way that uh, has transparency and democratic processes in one flavor or another built into the model. So another thing I want to ask you about, Jordan, which is related to America's technology future is this Endless Frontier Act that you've written about that I just uh, read in your most recent newsletter issue. What is this all about? Why should I be excited as someone who cares both about America and technology very much. Kevin, even even if you don't care about America, you should still uh, <laughs> you should still be invested uh, in the Endless Frontier Act. The Endless Frontier Act is the brainchild of uh, Majority Leader Schumer. The vision is to invest a hundred billion dollars over the next five years. This is not appropriations. This is just authorization to get the National Science Foundation to create a directorate of technology. Usually what the National Science Foundation does is do basic research, which is just very kind of curiosity-driven, like pie-in-the-sky work, and move that sort of towards the right from basic to, to more applied research, which is getting closer to the sort of things that can turn into kind of companies or, or capabilities for the military or what have you, and uh, really try to close a gap, which a lot of researchers have identified in the American research ecosystem, where a lot of very rich veins of basic research end up dying in a sort of research valley of death and not make it into into actual firms or, or, or products. It's not very often that $20 billion annual of research comes into play. And this money has the potential to really revolutionize everything from chips to so sort of climate change solutions to innovative AI algorithms. Basically, like any exciting technology which can be researched, if you have $100 million, you can throw money towards. So that's why I'm excited about it. Uh, there are a few reasons why I am worried at the development of the way this bill has been pushed out. The National Science Foundation seems really not excited to take this money, which is a surprising <laughs> thing. Usually when American bureaucracies have tens of billions of dollars getting thrown their way, usually their response is, yes, please, can I have another? However, sort of former NSF, NSF heads and the background briefings to to, to congressional staffers as well as as well as the media have basically been saying we're really worried that this is going to distract from our main mission which is to do basic science research and from my sense is that on the hill no one is really thinking about starting a different just starting a sort of directorate out of whole cloth and making it its own organization of american applied research or what have you but to me, it seems like a much cleaner solution to give this money to someone who actually is excited about about this research push as opposed to stuffing this in, a, in an institution which is hesitant to, to take this in as their mandate. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question about this because 
the NSF mandate is most of it to do very basic scientific research that may or may not ever be used commercially ever, and that is totally okay. We're advancing knowledge, humanity, so on and so forth. And it does sound like this Endless Frontier proposal is becoming much more application-driven in the way they want this money to be used in a way that does look a lot more like the way the Chinese government is approaching government-funded research. It doesn't matter how basic it looks like, at some point you want to see some stuff on the road or in the consumer's hand that has a direct tracing to whatever this project ended up starting. Is that like just... Now, us copying the way China does it because we think that model is actually better in some sense. And I don't have an opinion on it one way or another. I'm just curious to hear if that's the right way to do it. Because if it is, then go for it. Whatever it is, whatever it takes to rejuvenate our innovation, I think is a good thing. Yeah, it's funny because you see Republicans saying, oh, we don't want to copy China's playbook. We don't want both Republicans and the Biden administration are saying we, we don't want to out China China. But look, there is a gap like it's. There are studies which show like all these technologies which die, which kind of could have existed had had there been this sort of gap hunting, both studies as well as like anecdotal evidence of scientists being frustrated that they all they needed was like a five million dollar mm-hmm. push to be and the career security also, which comes with that money to be able to take take leaps from more basic to 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 applied research. I have not seen anyone write the paper saying this country invests too much in research and development. It seems to me that if what you want to do is boost long-term productivity, this and like education are the two best ways to be spending your money as a government. Presumably the NSF is scared that this will be the sexy thing and Congress will see, oh, look at all these cool applications. Why are we studying the way bees migrate? Because this isn't useful to us. It sounds to me that I there think- is a bit of a unnecessary pride in a lot of the er- uh, a lot of the rhetoric coming from both sides, people who actually don't want this to happen. This We don't want to out China in the sense that we don't want to copy China because we are Americans. Even though China yeah. has been out the U.S., U.S., whatever you want to call it, have been out of America for the last two, three decades by copying everything or referencing or absorbing or forced tech transfer, however you want to call it, everything that we can do, we have been doing in order to catch up. And what is the, the holdup for us to do the same, you know? Yeah. Yeah, personally, I see no shame in learning lessons from other countries, be they like capitalist or state capitalist. If there is something about this focus on applied and experimental research, which is making sense and allowing particular Chinese technology firms to have really dynamic market products that they can sell around the world, more power to them. And yeah, let's learn. It's funny because no one's saying, let's not out China China when it comes to subsidizing fab production. <laughs> exactly. Uh, which is like a bridge that the Republicans have, which is a bridge that both Democrats and Republicans are now. But, it's, that, it's but the level of comfort, sorry to interrupt you, Jordan, but the level of comfort, really, we reach that level of comfort because of how, how far our own national champion like Intel has fallen. I feel like that is just yeah. like such a large sting to not just the industry, but I think the entire American psyche, DC, certainly the policymaking circle. That is how far we have to fall behind in order for us to come together and be like, you know what, let's just do something that works and that has worked in other countries, regardless of what country that is, and get our shit together. Yeah, I have a really hard time imagining 
the downside of spending this money? Is it going to crowd out public, you know, private sector investment right. in research in this sort of? <laughs> no. Is it going to be I, like there, there are like scholarships which are involved in, in this legi- in this legislation's talking about making like high manufacturing cool again? And just there's I think just like a general you put money in into something and it's also a way that sort of leads the more market focused like PE and VC firms to say okay like maybe there will be better things coming out of this pipeline now that there's an extra 20 billion dollars a year of interesting research which is being created in these spaces so that's what I was thinking just now like out of the 20 billion per year that this thing might get earmarked for why would you not reserve 500 million out of that 20 billion per year to just have a small to be a fund out of the NSF and actually invest in some startups and have the American taxpayer own stakes and equity in some of the projects that could potentially be the next billion dollar company and we all going to get paid or something because that's what the yeah. other countries are doing if we come if we want to bring this back to the TMCMC story and the history of Morris Chang real quick the Taiwanese government were 48% owners of the initial investment round that founded TSMC Right, the Taiwanese government. The rest, fifty-two percent, Morris had to go around and raise from companies and business leaders and so on and so forth, and that is okay. Yeah, talking about out China, China, out China in China, doing government direct investment investment. Uh, Maybe a bridge too far for the Republicans, but personally, I think is totally fine. It's the sort of thing looking, coming back to how we started our conversation with Tesla, right? If those those loans in 2008 and 2009 were equity stakes, not loans, like America would be, I don't know, a billion dollars richer (laughs) thanks to the stakes. Both of us might have gotten like an extra $14 in our tax return or something. That will be like the the, the, the Tesla dividend. Absolutely. I I do think it's a bit of a failure of imagination on like American industrial policy part to put all this money into these subsidy plans and whatnot and not have any of the sort of like long tail upside which a which investors would expect if they were putting this this much on the line and it it just makes the math work a little better if you're trying to get this to work for the long term and i think there's there are definitely downsides when you have the government really as like the majority investor in a space and you've seen just coming back to the space industry right that's basically what happened and we had a sclerotic space industry for ooh 30 40 mm-hmm. years basically because NASA was the only game in town that said for these sort of like dynamic new industries where the government is only going to be maximum what like just be a 5% five, 2.5% owner yeah. like what is a big deal having NSF on your cap table I'm sure will do wonders for so many small companies they're just trying to get off the ground to form partnerships to be seen as more legitimate among big industry leaders to get business deals and to really do the things that this bill is supposedly trying to to stimulate so i think that's a good thing well i I look forward to the day where this gets created and kevin you get to run the little open source corner of this american (laughs) american future fund america.vc the new the china talk rhodium student research symposium if you're graduating this semester from an undergrad or master's program and have done any research incorporating Chinese language sources, submit your work for consideration. The authors of the best five papers will receive 200 bucks each and the opportunity to appear on this show to talk to me about your findings. Link to the Google form is in the description. And I am hiring. Rhodium is looking for a research assistant to support our growing technology and industry research practice. If you have confident Chinese as well as a passion for technology policy, industry analysis, and maybe some Python or R, please consider applying. 
Link also in the description. Do you have any thoughts on ORAN and the Democracy Tech Alliance, which is building around it? I do, actually. So one thing I wanted to bring into this conversation is ORAN uh, is this purported open source 5G I'm going to call it a project because I don't think it's really been deployed in the wild yet. And it's getting a lot of attention. We mentioned it in our Wired Magazine op-ed on open source last year, very briefly. And it has since actually gotten a lot more attention in the EU. I think four of the largest telecoms in the EU have openly supported this project. And more recently, I think I'm hearing a lot more ORAN being mentioned in the American congressional context as well when they think about 5G. And I think it's both very welcoming and an opportunity again for America to lead on this next wave of kind of infrastructural technology that is very similar to the internet, the TCPIP protocol building days of the 80s and the 90s, which of course is a very American-driven project. We actually have a good presence of an international internet organization that was shepherded by a U.S. agency until not that long ago. And this is, of course, ICANN, or I-C-A-N, which is the namespace governing body of all the URLs that you will have to buy to start your own website or your own Substack or whatnot. And this organization, I-C-A-N, has been stewarded by the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, or NTIA, which is out of the Department of Commerce, my old dig, which I'm very happy about. And the handoff didn't even happen until late 2016. So ICANN, the organization, was very much not under, but certainly in partnership with NTIA for a very long time until recently. And this is a very good example of an international standard-setting organization, a very community-driven organization that also had leadership from a very particular agency within the United States to shepherd it along in a way that's quite light touch, so it still got buy-in from almost everybody in the world, but it's also something that is very open and very democratic. And I do think there is a role for uh, certain agencies in in, in the administration to play when it comes to shepherding open source 5G. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about the ICANN analogy because the world is very different from the late 80s and 90s when that was born. And I wonder if American hands end up being much more toxic than they would to the than they, than they were to the sort of naming convention ecosystem which was able to be uh, burst to such uh, incredible effect mm-hmm. by by ICANN but I, I I get your point Kevin and I think that it's largely correct and just that sort of ORAN it doesn't matter if China has buy-in type technology solution that more government involvement is probably for the good as opposed to the as opposed to the ill though just thinking about like how I think there's like putting their thumb on the scales a little bit, but it's not a sort of all in that the U.S. government has made with respect to ORAN yet. There have been like a billion dollars here and there, but it's not a mandate to only buy ORAN solutions. Yeah, and I'm not so totally convinced that being totally all in from a top down way is even the right way to do it from either the U.S. or any perspective or the EU or China for that matter, because it's an open project at the end of the day. And I think the ICANN example, again, is probably worth researching into because the NTIA is a sub-bureau of a, I'm going to call it a second tier department, which will piss off some people, (laughs) but really it's not a heavy-handed thing. This is not 
some White House task force that has to meet every single month and they have a big press event out of it to show the world how much the U.S. is putting its thumb on the scale of something that's supposedly open and transparent to the entire world to use. And there are models for us to do that in a very soft touch way. And I can could be something to look into when we think about how we're going to foster open RAN 5G the right way. Kevin, what uh, tech CEO deserves the Steve Jobs the movie treatment? I'm not sure about a movie yet, but I think one person that you and I have both talked about is ByteDance is Zhang Yiming, the CEO of ByteDance. And the reason why I want to bring him up is that he recently gave a all-hand speech to the entire ByteDance workforce. And obviously, ByteDance has had quite a year when it comes to both its success and growth, but also its public Uh, profile, let's just say. And if you read the speech, obviously it's in Chinese. It's a very meditative, zen-like speech. It's not like a rah-rah like you hear from Leijun or something that's very dramatic and theatrical from Jack Ma. It's almost like a meditation of how to be present. It's like a, it's almost something you get from like a Headspace app or something. And I think in the yeah. very end, he cited of all people, the free solo climber, Alex Hanon, which is like a yeah. very huge documentary, the person who scaled El Capitan, the free solo surface. And I think I very, I remember very well the speech where he said, when Alex was thinking about his next move, he's just thinking about the next move. He can't think about the move he just made. And he can't think about the move he's going to make after this move because he's going to fall down to the abyss and die. And that is the kind of presence that he wants all of ByteDance to like embody or something going forward, which I thought was just like a very high level way of thinking about it. Whether you buy the rhetoric or not, whether you think it's just some cheesy uh, motivational speech or what ne- whatever, I don't quite see that kind of elevated thinking when it comes to leadership among most tech CEOs that I have read about or seen in the Chinese tech sphere. So I'm going to give Zhang Yiming the nod if Hollywood ever wants to make a biopic of a Chinese CEO. Yeah, the one anecdote that always has stuck with me about him is he's created first Toutiao, which was like very algorithm heavy news, which was like barely news. It was like, here was a fight in Heilongjiang and here's some like woman who's half naked in this province or whatever. And of course, has done TikTok, which is like 15 second videos. And I remember him saying, I don't like my products. The attention spans are too short. And it's bad for the world. Like, I prefer to read, like, long articles. And I tried to put that in my app. But no one would, retention would go way down because no one wanted to read, like, investigative journalism on, on, on Totiao or whatever. And it's interesting watching, using Douyin, which you can now do in the U.S. You just download it if you just change your app store to China and then go back to the U.S. and it's there forever. The, the, the attempt to elevate the level of content in a, in product form of, I see more of the, more and more kind of 10 minute long videos and three part 10 minute long videos, which like add up to 30 minutes. If you're just, if you're just sitting there and like, I've been watching these like deep dives into ASML in Chinese. (laughs) And so it's interesting because I remember reading that anecdote, like from three or four years ago and being like, wow, this guy's so full of shit. Like he's just like polluting everyone's mind while he sits there and reads the economist or whatever. But watching him at least through some of his apps, try to create 
content allowed like the elevation of the level of content in his apps has been a really interesting thing to to see whether or not he's able to square the circle of having engaging stuff that keeps you addicted to the app while also maybe teaching you a thing or two i'm totally with you i think he's the most interesting person in this world and has not and is just like a it's just like a super weird dude. These guys are all... You have to be super weird. You have weird to be super weird. You have to be very out there and have to balance a lot of paradox in your head to do the things that you do, which I think what you just said really comes across. If he had it in his way, he would probably let you watch Free Solo on TikTok uninterrupted for all he can. But right now, you probably have to watch yeah. it in 30 seconds first with some other people commenting on it and some stupid emoji and some crazy light effects in the process in order to yeah. keep it while trying to sell you a a, 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 a back sort of bag or something okay. or like some hand chalk who knows <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Chu thanks so much for being a part of China of Talk of course always happy to be back